Welcome to Altered States of Context, a podcast about psychedelics, psychotherapy, and the uneasy fit between a medicalized view of human suffering and the mysterious, mystical world of psychedelic drugs. I'm your co-host, Nathan Gates. And I'm your co-host, Brian Pilecki. We're two therapists and longtime psychedelic advocates who love to discuss all aspects of this fast-evolving field. Thanks for keeping it current with us. And thanks for keeping it weird as we dive into today's episode. If you're looking for a dependable platform for your psychedelic-assisted therapy practice, or just your regular psychotherapy practice, look no further than Ozmind. We're excited to have Ozmind as one of our new partners at ASOC and as a supporter of this podcast. As the premier platform for this field, Ozmind provides an all-in-one system with customized charting for ketamine, spravato, and traditional psychotherapy, as well as a patient app with over 40 validated rating scales and secure messaging options. By joining Ozmind's Psychiatry Tomorrow newsletter, you'll also get access to over 10 guides and templates to help start and grow your psychedelic therapy practice. Take your practice to the next level with Ozmind. And you can join Ozmind today by using our link, osmind.org ASOC. That's O-S-M-I-N-D dot org forward slash A-S-O-C. Victor Cabral is a collaborative and strategic leader who has made an impact on human rights and historical inequalities throughout his career. Before joining Fluence, Victor served as deputy director for the Pennsylvania Governor's Office of Advocacy and Reform, where he helped lead the implementation of the Trauma-Informed PA Plan, established First Racial Day of Healing in Pennsylvania history, and developed free trauma trainings for Pennsylvanians in collaboration with internationally recognized experts. Vic is a research-based systems thinker with expertise in policy development, advocacy, consulting, racial and communal trauma, and is also a practicing psychotherapist with training in internal family systems, psychedelic-assisted therapy, and other modalities. Vic was also listed on the Students for Sensible Drug Policy list of 40 under 40 outstanding BIPOC leaders in drug policy in the United States for his work in psychedelic policy. All right, welcome to another episode of Altered States of Context. I am your host, Brian Pilecki, uh, joined by my co-host, Nate. How's it going, Nate? Good, good, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm really excited about our guest today, Victor Cabral. Uh, I've gotten to know Vic over the last year or so. I should tell our audience that Vic and I uh, both work uh, with uh, Fluence training in various capacities. And so um, it's been great to get to work with you, Vic, in a couple of different training experiences. And I'm really excited for your perspective today on psychedelics and policy and kind of big picture things that are going on. Um, that we haven't covered as much in this podcast as, as this podcast has been mostly focused on the psychotherapy portion and the, the actual like process of change that comes with psychedelics. So it's fun to zoom out. This is not, not an area that I really have a lot of background or training in. So um, it's really great to have you on today. Yeah, thanks, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, get to sit down with you and, and Nate. And I'm excited. I love the name of the podcast, by the way. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think, you, you know, your, your perspective as somebody who has spent a lot of time studying and thinking about drug policy in general, legal issues uh, related to drugs. And you also spent a lot of time, a lot of your work is centered around equity and justice um, and the impacts of things like drug policy on communities, various communities, um, the intersection with uh, trauma, racial trauma, uh, and then your your background and training in psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, I think you know you bring a very unique perspective. I'm I'm curious to hear how you describe yourself uh, when someone asks you, "What do you do, Vic?" How do you describe yourself, especially in terms of your current role now? Yeah, I I think 
I would preface it by saying I'm a nonlinear thinker. And so I think that's evident in the way that I show up and the different kind of work that I do, because I do a lot of different things and, and try to find where the points, uh, where the meeting points are with all of these issues. And so uh, currently I serve as the Director of Policy and Regulatory Affairs for Fluence Training. And in that role, uh, really my, my main objective has been to build relationships, establish relationships within the, the policy area or the, the policy wing of the psychedelic movement, I guess you could say, and just support what's happening and, and connect folks and, and add our voices or our influence wherever we can to support things moving forward. So that's really been my focus and uh, keeping the pulse on, on what's happening in places like Oregon and Colorado and uh, other states that are passing different kinds of bills so that we are keeping up to date with, with what needs to happen on the training and education side to ensure that our clinicians are, are uh, you know, have the most up-to-date information when it comes to policy and regulatory issues. So um, in addition to that, with Fluence, I, I do some work with uh, helping to build curriculum, co-facilitating co trainings and uh, mentoring students. Uh, because of my background before getting into policy, I, I am a licensed social worker and a therapist, and I have training in, in um, psychedelic assisted therapy. And so uh, it kind of allows me to um, to support different areas of, of what we do in terms of training and education. So that's what I do currently uh, in my full-time job. Outside of that, uh, and in my background, a lot of my work since uh, for the last 10 years has been focused on communities of color and community that I come from, uh, and trying to just find what the root causes of the issues are that we're facing as a community. And and really trying to support uh, solutions to that. And so for me, uh, psychedelic, psychedelics, plant medicine were, were very pivotal and, and life-changing. And since 2016, it's been my focus to kind of um, build education, build culture creation community around plant medicine and empower uh, communities of color to really be able to make uh, autonomous decisions about their, their healing. Um, and, you know, when we talk about the war on drugs, when we talk about the history of this country, the experiences of the of African diaspora, specifically for, you know, my background all around the world and Latin America, et cetera, um, intergenerational trauma, all of these things are issues that I think uh, plant medicine can help uh, address and um, help us deepen our relationship to ourselves and to, to our history and to our identity. So, yeah, that's that's uh, what I do. And I don't know that that was very specific other than what I do for fluence, but I'm kind of all over the place. And there's a method to the madness, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you said at the beginning, you know, a non non fluid thinker. So, um, Brian, you're gonna have to keep us on the straight and narrow. Or <laughs> I'm gonna be all over the fucking place. So <laughs> you'd be our anchor. <laughs> I will do my best. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it seems that when it comes to psychedelics, you know, maybe this is just my biased perspective, but when we talk about psychedelics or psychedelic therapy, it's like you can't really talk about that without also talking about drug policy and, and drug attitudes and norms and the history. And that then, of course, naturally brings up all of this history of oppression and the harm that has been done by drug policy. You know, there, there's like in Oregon, there was this sort of this two currents of trying to make psilocybin accessible and to decriminalize drugs that a lot of people believe need to happen simultaneously. Um, so, you know, I'm just curious when you hear people talking about psychedelics or psychedelic assisted therapy, do you feel like um, that it is a natural bridge to talk about some of these other areas? Um, or is that, um, is that due to the work of folks like you who are centering some of these issues alongside the psychedelic renaissance? Yeah, I don't think it's a natural connection that's made that I see out, outside of the psychedelic space. I don't see 
that conversation happening. Um, generally, I don't, uh, in my in my experience. Um, yeah, I think there's folks, folks like Izzy at Maps and um, Devin Phillips and a bunch of other folks that are doing great work to really, uh, if it's a RV, um, there's a lot of great folks in drug policy that are uh, constantly centering the conversation with that larger frame of of looking at drug policy and looking at the history of drug policy in this country and ensuring that as we're talking about psychedelics and with and plant medicine and where we need to go policy wise that those those topics aren't lost in that conversation and that um it's not just about plant medicine um it, that's very important but it's also about how do we uh restructure the way that we the way that we do drug policy and and try to undo some of the harms that have that can, are still being done to to oppressed communities historically oppressed communities so um yeah i don't think generally that outside of our community of of you know psychedelic nerds or whatever you want to call us right that that that's a natural conversation that happens i think that's something that we have to be intentional about when mm -hmm. we're talking to legislators or decision makers about the implications of policy and and really the benefits of plant medicine aren't just the direct benefits that we experience by you know sitting with with medicine but also this opportunity to really shift the way that we think about drugs generally and um and how people are viewed uh for wanting to you know to engage with with drugs and really taking a harm reduction approach uh the, dr carl hart is another great example of someone who's yeah. done a lot of great work around that conversation that's something that we've been um you know i've been working here uh locally in illinois um uh, with the illinois psychedelic society i'm, I'm you know the president of the board with them and then Entheo Illinois, which is a advocacy organization we just founded that's working on the um, compassionate use and research of entheogens act that'll be introduced in Illinois next week. And as we've been um, putting it forward, kind of like our red line that we have not been willing to compromise on is making sure that, you know, at least for any substance that is included in the bill. And at this point it's paired um, down to, to psilocybin that it, includes a descheduling of the drug. So it will be effectively decriminalized um, uh, because I, it concerns me. We've talked about this a good deal on the podcast. You moving forward with just a sort of a medicalized or just a therapeutic approach um, without changing the legal structure, you know, they, they kind of doesn't, it doesn't really address the full range of, of, of the problem. And it does pigeonhole it, it you know, pigeonholes the the, the psychedelics, the, the, the mushrooms, it, it pigeonholes the drugs is just one thing, and also, but also keeps in place that sort of repressive structure. Um, and, and those need to be addressed at the same time, in my opinion. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I love to see the, the movements where it's possible, where we're having both a medical or supported services model alongside the decriminalized model, because for me, from my perspective, I think I think about community access. I think about um, uh, implications for communities of color who might not, um, uh, who might face repercussions, right, because of yeah. uh, their engagement with these substances. So, um, I agree. I think. Uh, from my perspective and from my experience in working in several different states and working with folks on the federal level is um, the state-to-state -state approach on the decrim is probably going to be the most successful. Uh, it's going to be harder to have a decriminalization model at the federal level, I think. Uh, but we also, I think, have to consider that depending on the state that you're in, depending on what kind of uh, framework you're using to move forward policy in, in a given state, um, it might, in some places, it's not doable or realistic with the legislative makeup there or, you know, mm -hmm. the politics to be able to move along, uh, move those things along uh, simultaneously. And so um, the cool thing about Oregon and Colorado is that they're ballot measures. So you can circumvent the legislature right, by getting enough signatures and getting something there, uh, you know, whatever the will of the people is, is what ends up happening versus a state like where I'm in, in Pennsylvania, where a bill 
you know, that's uh, doing both might be a little bit harder to get through a legislative, uh, the legislative process. So yeah, um, I, I think from a value standpoint and, and from what I want to see generally and also for my own community is uh, models that allow for community use and for access. Uh, but from like a practical policy standpoint, and when I put like my my policy hat on and dealing with different folks, I think sometimes uh, that's something that we have to to consider a bit more in terms of is this going to be able to move forward or are we going to give them ammunition? Uh, right. We know that decrim can when you take it and and put it into the political arena that can turn into you know these guys you know anarchy and all of these other things that are political weapons so um it, i think it really depends on the support that you have what state you're in what you know what the politics are there and um and what you're able to do in in terms of what kind of framework you're able to use to move policy forward there are interesting it might be uh interesting to think through like um there's some significant differences between um yeah those ballot initiative states oregon and wash and and uh colorado and um what we're doing in illinois and i know what like, like new york california they're trying to do um and there's disadvantages because i mean you, you have to deal with politicians you can't go directly to the people but at the same time i think there's some problems and we really saw it come up in oregon and i expect we'll see it come up in colorado too is that when you pass a ballot initiative it's it's very rigid and flexible at that point that's what passed that's what you know there's not a lot of wiggle room um whereas with a um when you go legislatively you know you can be more flexible and solve problems as they come up you know at the same time then you have to deal with uh, you know um interest groups and you know a lot of different agendas and you know so there's there's challenges i mean it's no accident that's happened first in ballot initiative states you know that's not an accident at all but i think they're um depending on like you said the makeup of your particular state you know, there, there's not a, a tremendous backlash at this point. There's a lot of openness, you know, as we've had these conversations, there's a lot of openness among legislators still. There's not, um, I think it depends on what, you know, substances you're talking about too. I, I don't think psilocybin triggers an automatically large visceral negative reaction, but we'll see, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, yeah, I'll just, I'll just add that. Yeah, I agree with you. I think, um, Usually, what I've seen with psilocybin usually is a lack of education with legislators rather than yeah. like like a very strong like no. And I think that because we've seen, I mean, myself and I know some other folks in the policy space, whether they supported what what's happening in Oregon and Colorado or not, understood that um, in Colorado, Colorado in terms of policy was pivotal because if we if Colorado would not have passed this bill, it would have would have had uh, a lot of implications for what we were able to move forward with policy, regardless of whether it's a valid measure or. Hundred um, percent. Yeah, it was huge. But, yeah. So I think that the wins that we've that folks have had in these states, and um, you know, you have Connecticut, uh, which I was a part of with Reason for Hope, which um, was able to move uh you know uh establish an expanded access program there and i believe they also moved mdma out of a measure that would move mdma out of the scheduling that it's currently in once it's approved by the fda you have texas who's doing uh research uh, a research approach there um oregon colorado california we expect to probably do something right uh california has always been a leader when, when it comes to that um, so I think all of these legislative wins, regardless of the approach, uh, have helped with the optics around psilocybin specifically. And, mm. um, and so I think that can be beneficial. And, and again, yeah, I think it depends on the, on the state and who you have in the legislature and their willingness and, and the education level of, um, your, your state, uh, legislature, right? Do they understand the medical benefits here in Pennsylvania, what we ran into, was an education issue once we got the bill to committee. You know, we had a bipartisan, in Pennsylvania, we had 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats introduce a bill together on uh, establishing an expanded access program, a research program within the Department of Health. 
and then it died in in the committee and we through discussion figured out that that you know we agreed that it was an education issue there wasn't enough education prior mm -hmm. to um it getting there so it, yeah it, it really depends on the state and um when did that when did that happen um so i at the time i was working in the governor's office here in Pennsylvania is the deputy director of the Office of Advocacy and Reform. So that would have been, I think, 2021. 2020, 2021 was when we were working towards that. And it was House Bill 1959, I believe. Um, so that would have been just, just after Oregon, but before Colorado? Yeah, I think maybe before. No, yeah, after Oregon and before, for sure, before Colorado. And uh, yes, right. I believe after Oregon, yeah. Yeah, it's a changing, you know, it's all, it's changing fast. And I, and I agree with you. I think that the um, Colorado passing that was huge, you know, having the second state do it. And it really puts the wind, I think, it, at, at reformers' backs. And um, I'm, I'm hoping, I think right now is a pretty ideal time uh, for us to push, for anybody to push, because I think there is, like I said, a little wind at the back. And um, I think it's important to decouple too. Um, drug reform issues which are relatively popular often a lot of issues of you know people worried about um crime and whatnot and you know those aren't exactly the same issue and i think how we how we talk about that and work with that's really important and i think it's been it was also really important this fall that there wasn't a big backlash i think a lot of people were worried that there would be a big backlash you know tough on crime backlash that didn't materialize so i think a lot of politicians are going to feel a little more comfortable with this, because um, they haven't, they, you know, they didn't see the backlash that they anticipated seeing. So, so my hope is that it's a pretty good time to push on some of these issues. That there's going to be some openness to um, solving some of these problems, um, you know, without the political hot buttons derailing things as much as they have in the past. But you know, perhaps that's optimistic. But um, I'm much more optimistic today than I was a year ago. We've been working on this for over a year, and I think. Today, I'm much more optimistic than I was at the start of the process. Yeah, I think I share your optimism generally. Uh, things are moving really fast. And I, I think it's it's about being tactful, right? Because I, I know that sometimes there's conversations about decrim or, you know, there's in some of these states, there's pretty tense conversations around whether we should be focusing on medicalization or decriminalization. But to your point, um, you it's yes and right i think it's it's both and how do we leverage the healing potential and um the experiences of folks of all backgrounds conservatives liberals veterans etc to be able to then soften the conversation for um decriminalization and i think but i also understand that some folks are so passionate about decrim because um, of the impact that it has on uh, on communities who don't have access or that could potentially face criminal penalties uh, for their use or relationship with with plant medicine. And so I can I can also understand why folks don't want to leave that conversation for later. Mm -hmm. um, we see what happens when we when we do that. Right. Um, exactly. This is I, to me, the bundling is the opportunity. It's, you know, it's it's when um, when you bundle them. I mean, I think, you know, my approach in Illinois, and I, we've talked about it as a, like the Illinois Psychedelic Society is that, you know, if during the legislative process, the descheduling of psilocybin, the effective decriminalization of it would be stripped out, um, I don't know that I could still support the bill. I'm not sure that, I, I, in fact, I, I, I couldn't myself because I don't agree that it should be completely medicalized without and, and also remain against the law for, for people to, you know, uh, go to jail over. Um, it just don't, I, I can't get there. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. And I think, and even with decrim uh, measures, sometimes uh, it's one thing that I've heard from people on the ground in Colorado who were uh, opposed to the uh, the measure that just passed there. So there was some uh, conversation there back and forth yeah. between um, the folks that were on decrim side was that even with uh, decrim sometimes you still have people of color and communities of color who are still facing backlash or still being arrested even though decrim measures were passed in in certain cities or or uh, so yeah I think 
I think it's a good move to start with trying to reschedule it because then it leaves room to potentially have some conversations and negotiations as a bill moves through the legislature to to move the conversation to a decrim conversation if if need be, but doing that in dialogue so that it doesn't get hijacked and turned into something else. And so, but I would love to see it completely, you know, descheduled. And and I don't know, I think it would set a great a great path for other states to do the same. Maybe we could take a step back and just for our audience members who might not be as familiar with these terms, I'm wondering Vic, if you could just kind of define what decriminalization means. Uh, I think a lot of people get confused about that. I get calls from clients all the time that they've heard about Measure 109 and they heard that, you know, psychedelics are now, now legal. And so, yeah, could you just explain like what does decrim mean? So it depends. Uh, in some places, decrim means that the law enforcement authorities are instructed not to pursue any kind of charges up to a certain amount of a substance, right? So um, whatever they deem personal, a, a personal amount, right? They'll, they'll tell their police force, their law enforcement, like, do not enforce these laws, uh, and uh, that might be like a resolution that's passed by city council in a certain city, or um, uh, it might be a, a mandate from the state, right, from the top down saying don't, don't uh, prosecute. So you have that, and then you have places who have passed laws where you're no longer uh, facing any criminal charges at all. So you have places like Oregon where like if you get caught with a certain amount of a substance, psilocybin, so et cetera, uh, you get a fine instead of getting a criminal charge. Um, and that's a now a state law uh, versus um, in some other places where you just have this kind of turning a blind eye to um, uh, to these issues. So there's less in places like Oregon, because it's a state initiative, there's less discretion at the local level when it comes to uh, uh, whether you prosecute these things or not, folks have a stronger leg to stand on, I think, than when it's a local initiative where there's just a resolution um, that leaves the discretion up to whoever the DA is, or et cetera, to say, well, no, we're going to charge or not. Or um, So from my perspective, those are the two main kind of decrim, uh, decriminalization approaches that I've seen generally. And then what Nate's talking about, where it's descheduling, it's it's moving. Uh, so you have federal level scheduling. So you have schedule one, two, three, four, five. On schedule one, you have psilocybin, you have LSD, you have MDMA. Um, and so at the federal level, these substances have been deemed to have no medical use. And so there's no public dollars for research, um, except in some cases. And you were you prosecuted uh, pretty harshly for having a certain amount of these drugs. Uh, at the state level, states often have their own scheduling uh, that they uh, uh, that they have within their policies or laws. And so MDMA, for example, even if the FDA approves it as a as a medicine, there's still, I believe, like 27 states that need to reschedule at the state level to allow for um, these substances, to, this substance to be used there. So um, even a, a state could reschedule at the state level, like Illinois or, or any of these other states, but that doesn't change the scheduling at the federal level. Um, and there are efforts to do that as well uh, uh, from folks that I know are working in the policy space. So I hope that helped. Yeah, it definitely gets confusing. And I think for, you know, folks out there who aren't following this or who don't have, uh, you know, they're not staying up to date with the news um, in, in these, these sorts of areas, um, it's unclear, like, what the risk is. And I think people, they might hear decriminalization, they might think, oh, there's no risk. But I think what you're saying is that you're, that's not necessarily the case. There still may be some risk, and especially... If you're a person of color or another, you know, uh, identity that's been, you know, previously marginalized, your risk might be higher depending on where you live and depending on the situation that you find yourself in. Yeah, for sure. And and I'm not a lawyer, obviously, but um, <laughs> you know, you can still face federal prosecution um, even with state 
decriminalization or state, uh, you know, we've seen that with marijuana, right, where the Department of Justice has had to outright say, do not enforce these laws in these states. But we can have a president that comes in, you know, in 2024 and say, we're shutting it all down. And um, they would have the authority to do that. And so, you know, on the federal level, there's still risk on the local level because of, you know, structural racism, et cetera. Uh, there's still risks. And there's also risks like professionally. Your boards, if you're a licensed therapist or a doctor or a nurse practitioner or whatever, you could still face uh, issues with your board or with your professional organization around these things. So that's part of the work that we're also trying to do is opening up conversations with professional bodies, state boards, so that uh, they can keep up with what's happening on the policy side. What happened in... There was that store, basically a dispensary that just opened up in Oregon and started selling mushrooms, right? They were raided. And who did the, the raiding on that? I thought it was the DEA, but I'm not sure. Is it Was it local police, state police, the DEA? Do you guys know? Uh, I, I don't know uh, exactly who raided it. I think, I think there was a while there where like folks were kind of pointing the finger at each other in terms of like who should... Uh, yeah, shut these guys down from like just anecdotal conversations. Uh, but I believe it was a state agency or a state level. Um, yeah, it was the it was the uh, police in uh, Oregon. Okay, and this was called Troom House. For folks who aren't aware yeah. of this, uh, they they apparently op- are from Canada. Uh, it's a bit of a mystery who's the you know the source of uh, the, the shops, but. Um, this was a dispensary for uh, psilocybin and you could wait in line because there were long lines once people got wind of this uh, and you went inside and you basically filled out a lot of paperwork, um, giving over a lot of information. And the idea was that I, I think you were sort of, you know, saying that you would benefit from these for medical purposes and then they were, they were given to you. So I know some folks who are, who kind of went just to check it out just for the experience. Um, but then we're unwilling to give over information to yeah. them because they didn't want to be connected with, with this operation. So it was a very interesting, uh, unusual occurrence that um, it, it was hard to, to decipher the motivations. Were they just trying to make money? Were they testing the water somehow? I don't know. Yeah. You know, my idealist, hopeful, hat uh, that I put on with this situation was that maybe there was a higher, uh, maybe there was a plan here. You know, maybe they had lawyers who said, well, we'll be able to fight this thing in this way. And uh, maybe it goes to a higher court. And I don't know. I was hoping that there was like some kind of strategy here that would move things forward in some way. Uh, But, you know, I may just be, I may just be looking at the bright side trying to look at the bright side. So, you um, might, you might be. I'm, I'm reading about it here. I looked it up, um, and you know they're being charged with ten counts each of money laundering, and ten counts each of unlawful delivery of a controlled substance within one thousand feet of a school. That seems like a really tactical blunder to be within a thousand feet of a school when they did this. But I don't know. So, but I think you know if we're talking about the public and you know the average person's perception. You know, this is this only adds to the confusion, right? Because they yeah. see, oh, shroom house, shrooms are legal, uh, or they, you know, and they might think, well, cannabis was legal, you know, it was illegal, now it's legal. It must be the same with, with um, psilocybin or other things as well. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, and and you see it even be, you know, even without places like like this shroom house place that was raided, you see that misunderstanding of policy all the time and um, that's part of what needs to happen around education because when folks believe oh well I don't know this this law was passed that's looking at research right people will see like and and then you have sensationalizing headlines that'll say like you know MDMA legalized in whatever state and really it's just like a research bill but now folks are are thinking it's it's legalized Mm -hmm. and that that thinking also filters into the legislature and filters into what people are hearing from their constituents. And so, 
that's why education and coordinated education yeah. is so important because even without places like this popping up people like most of us the average person doesn't spend a ton of time like looking at the intricacies of a policy right we um and there's certain interests in in any market that uh want to use headlines and want to use the way that things are communicated to move their own agendas forward in terms of, you know, whether it's investment or just generally mm -hmm. trying to move things forward. Um, on the policy side, we are guilty of it too, right? Like knowing what the intricacies are, but sometimes like playing with the optics of it to try to get support for something. So that's playing with fire sometimes uh, in terms of uh, what you're, the seed that you're planting uh, in people's heads about what's happening. Yeah, I think there's like, a, yeah, I agree with the confusing if you don't follow it closely. And, it, you know, if you go and you um, post something on uh, Twitter or uh, Instagram with like the word psilocybin or shrooms in it, like you'll get spammed by like, 20 bots that are trying to sell you the stuff all the time. Like it, it's, it's wild. And, you know, if you did, if you were in a state and you seen these headlines and you didn't know any better, um, you know, you know, you, like I think legitimately there are probably people who would think that like, Oh, you can just buy this now. And some of the products you can buy, it look like products you would buy from a store, like candy bars with uh, psilocybin and things like that, that are packaged in real professional looking packaging and things like that. Like, it's not just like a, you know, a Ziploc baggie of shrooms is like packaged and, and looks like a, um, you know, looks like the kind of product that you get from a store. And so I think that all creates this perception that it's sort of a gray area, but it's actually not a gray area. It's just against the law almost everywhere. Still, it's not gray. It's extremely clear. Yeah. I think that that's something to, to, to worry about really, because um, you can still get in trouble, a lot of trouble. And people do, you know, a lot of people are say like, ah, oh, well, you know, people don't really get prosecuted for mushrooms. And like, that's just not true. <laughs> like if you get arrested with mushrooms, like you will be in trouble. You will have, you will, you will have a problem. Yeah. I mean, there's folks in or, you know, that are active in the movement who have been, who've been arrested, charged. I know there was a gentleman in New York who I think even was, was, I believe got into some issues where they were going after his children. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, maybe, it, and maybe I'm conflating the stories, but there's issues that ha have happened around that, around folks being open about their use or, um, and having like children and youth involved in certain states. So there are a lot of risks. And in addition to like people just being hurt, harmed, right? Like if you can, if all it takes is one nightmare headline of someone, you know, getting something on the internet somehow, and then, um, you know, it makes it, it, it has implications for, for policy and for perception and, and optics, et cetera. So, you know, while I'm, I, I share, I think generally we were optimistic about how things are moving and, and where things are headed in terms of, of course, there's unanswered questions and there's all of these things that need to be figured out. But generally, the policy is, I think, moving faster than the education that needs to happen on the ground level. And so um, that's something that we need to be mindful of as we're navigating this uh, uh, new space. Right. When you talk about plant medicine is not new. Um, especially to, to communities of color and so and, and historically. But policy and plant medicine are, and so, uh, in some ways, and so, um, you know, you have this like boom happening economically and and in the medical sector and all in the policy, uh, but there's these things that are being missed, and so I know part of the concerns that I've heard in Colorado were like, if this thing passes five weeks from now, like ibogaine, MDMA, DMT, and psilocybin will all be decriminalized for gifting, growing. And uh, I forget what the third thing was, but there was legitimate concern from folks who were supportive about like, are we gonna have the infrastructure in place to support people when this passes? And so, um, yeah, I think those are conversations that need to be had uh, as we're moving forward with policy. So tell me what you, you said earlier, and I'm curious um, to unpack. Um, Tell me what you mean when you say community use. 
So I'm going to tell you my pie in the sky. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> my pie in the sky perspective. Um, when I mean community use, what I mean is for communities to be able to um, build their own infrastructure and um, models to serve their communities with plant medicine. And my hope and what I see is going to happen um, is that we're, we're, you know, medicalization is happening. It's moving forward. You have supported services uh, models in Oregon, Colorado. Uh, we're going to have some decrim stuff probably happen in California here soon. Um, if, if I'm somebody who has health insurance and this stuff has been adopted and there's ways to bill for it, et cetera, or if I just have the means to pay whatever amount of money it costs to go and, and have these services delivered. Um, and I'm having all of these great benefits in terms of, um, you know, my life is improving, my mental health, my physical health, et cetera, is improving. And my neighbor doesn't have insurance, doesn't have $2,500 to go pay and sit with someone, but they do have $40 to grow their own mushrooms. I believe that we're going to see kind of like a grassroots community level claiming of the right to have access to these medicines and to determine how they engage with those medicines on the community level. And so long term, I think that as these these medicines enter public consciousness here in the United States, I think that we're going to see I, I think medicalization is the first wave of, of something bigger that we're going to see in terms of what's going to happen with at the community level. Yeah, that's why to me, that's why um, that's why I don't support medical only bills. I only support them if they attach decriminalization, because if it attaches decriminalization, it creates the space for what you're talking about, because with what you're talking about. Um, is completely illegal still if you pass a medicalization only bill it doesn't like you know and in fact i mean i could foresee a circumstance in which it would actually turn up the heat a little bit on that because then you have um you know then it's like you're not only obviously you're always on the wrong side of the police when you are um you know when it's against the law but in this case you'd also be on the wrong side of profit making corporate you know businesses as well it would have an interest in you not competing with them um, and so I think that, um, it's really important, um, to create the space for, you know, communities to begin to, you know, bottom up on a ground level, um, because we don't know yet the, what the best way, you know, you know, what's the best container. I mean, that, well, that even presumes there is one, which I don't believe at all. There are probably, you know, many different ways of using it, many different containers, many different ways of supporting um, use. And, um, and I don't, I think, you know, imagining that we're going to, from the top down, know exactly what the perfect structure is, is, um, well, it's just like, it's sort of a perfect technocratic thing to think, um, <laughs> which is not a compliment. Yeah, and it just adds all those layers of red tape, which is the problem you see in um, Oregon and we'll see in Colorado too, which is it's just going to be so damn expensive because you're going to have to comply with a bunch of regulation that's there to protect people, but also to enrich people and also how much of it is necessary and how much of it isn't necessary. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a big, um, I think you're going to see a big expensive mess for a lot of people. Like you point out, like some people just won't be able to access it. And um uh, community use allows people to really um, find what works. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, uh, you know, there's issues that we could talk about in Oregon that I imagine also will come up at some point. But, yeah, I think I agree with you. And one of the things that I tell people often in, in policy conversations and with folks that I engage with is that uh, generally everyone's playing nice right now uh, in terms of like policy and research and whatnot but as you said once once certain things move forward then you're going to have a consolidation of of influence and power in, in certain spaces and so um and then you're going to have a, a flexing of that right uh that's not going to be supportive of least less expensive less regulated 
um, approaches to to uh, engaging with these medicines. So, um, yeah, I agree with you. I think it is important to have these models, uh, the the decrim models, being pushed as well and creating safety now, or at least more safety, right, than would be present if uh, uh, if there wasn't any decrim uh, side. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, nothing stops. I mean, nothing stops the local police from just knocking your door down. You know, um, yeah. if yeah. it's decriminalized or descheduled locally, I mean, yeah, the DEA still could, but they are highly unlikely to at this point. Um, and then the local police basically couldn't. Um, it wouldn't be in their in their scope of their job anymore. Yeah, and I think once uh, my hope is that folks will wake up to to their influence. And, and that's part of the education and part of the culture and community work is to uh, help folks realize the power they have at the local level um, while also working at, you know, not not neglecting the fact that if we can get a statewide decrim measure passed, great, right? But also <clears throat> part of the reason why I do work at so many levels, like being a therapist, being a community advocate where I live and in the state that I live, doing federal level policy, doing state level policy in other states is to try to approach the issues from multiple points and seeing what we can get done and move forward. And so um, my hope is in states where decrim or descheduling is going to be harder is that there'll, there'll be and empowering that happens, right? To to help folks, because uh, these these medicines are different than marijuana in terms of what they do to us and our relationship to certain uh, structures or uh, frameworks or you know authority. The point is that I think that these medicines will will have a, a certain influence on people that'll wake them up to their their ability to make change in their communities and so especially when you have folks that are you know you have movies coming out and pop culture and like all of these things that are like saying these things are amazing they're healing like i changed my life i kicked my addiction i you know reconnected with like my family i'm exploring my roots and my identity and where i come from. like all of these things it's going to be really hard to stop people from like creating their own pathways to, to access. And once you have enough folks doing that in a community and it's being destigmatized in the way that it is because of the legitimacy that the medical establishment is giving it, I think it'll be different than what we see with marijuana, right? So with marijuana, you have kind of like this still, even if it's medicalized or not, or you, you there's still this stigma, at least from my community, um, especially with elders, where with plant medicine, I think that there's a shift that happens in the way that we sh show up in the world that's like powerful um, yeah. in a different way. And then, uh, and then out, out in Oregon, um, uh, there's a uh, individual, John Dennis, who has been a big advocate of the community model. And he um, made a big push to have that incorporated into the rules um, and uh, was shut down by the board and, you know, came back with a different version of it where it was, um, you know, uh, appealed to some of the criticisms that they had launched towards, towards his initial proposal. But, you know, I think his, his comp most compelling argument was, you know, they said, well, we can do this later. You know, we can add on the community model in a couple of years, let's see how this goes. And, you know, John's comeback was kind of like what we're saying here is like, uh, no, it's going to be too late then because there will be players who have a vested interest in keeping it expensive and keeping it profitable. And so if we mm. don't start from this right away, yeah. uh, we're going we're, we're gonna to lose that opportunity. I think that that's totally right. You know, and I'm curious too, is thinking about social equity in this conversation. You know, my experience with this has been interesting. You know, to me, social equity is, um, you know, it's decriminalizing it. It's making the space for community use, making the space for communities to not feel the pressure of being uh, prosecuted, persecuted, repressed. But then there's the other social equity piece, which is more like, okay, so if you're talking about supervised use, um, you know, it's it's things like, you know, social equity licenses, things like that, that um, 
were commonly used in 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 a lot of cannabis, you know, have been and continue to be used in a lot of. And to me, those are well intentioned, but they add more red tape and drive up the price and tend to have not the effect they're intended to have. They're intended to broaden who can get involved, you know, like to make sure that certain stakeholders can basically get a leg up and kind of get, um, you know, make up for um, previous wrongs. And, you know, the intentions are good, but in practice, it seems to just gum up the works and give the state more control and more power to place more red tape. Um, so to me, the social equity is really, let's get the state out of the way and allow people to, you know, experiment and do this without the added cost of complying with a bunch of state regs. But is that too libertarian of me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think that's the ideal, right? And then, yeah, what I would like to see, right? Because even, as you said, there's there's a bunch of red tape that's created there. There's There's a bunch of issues with like representation, like how do we find the balance between making sure folks are safe and also not over-regulating and, and, um, and making it so that there's no access. So I don't have the answers, right? But, my, but definitely what I would like to see is a less complicated system that allows for folks to be uh, active participants in developing what that looks like for their communities. Um, and I think it's just with with policy and whatnot, like things and with the uh, structures that we have in place in this country and the way things work, it, it almost uh, forces you to have to play the game to try to it's this game. It's this dance of like, how much do we push? That's not too much and and constricts the space and then we can't get anything done. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a dance and it's and it requires dialogue. And I think when we get into extremes of uh, either it's like it has to be medicalized and the only way this should be delivered to people is through like you know licensed medical professionals versus the other side of things which is like no regulation just give it to people like stay out of it and i think that there's progress to be made and for things to be practical there needs to be some so like somewhere we need to meet in the middle somewhere um yeah, I I think that that's a really important point, and and there are like I I don't I don't personally at this point have much patience for the the what I've kind of view as the purest side of the equation either. It's like no, we can't have the state involved, and we decrim only no, um, because that's just not going to happen. <laughs> you know, I feel like it's why like it's why like I I think it's a perfect pairing. You know, because there's super interest in the medical and the therapeutic side. And if you can tie that to the decriminal decriminalization, they can't, to me, they can't, they're not going to work without each other. They, they, they need to be tied together. You know, the, the um, uh, medicalized, the popularity and then the interest of that brings along the decrim for the ride. Um, but if you don't take the decrim with you, you, you know, there's, you can't, to me, there, you can't have justice. Like there will not be justice without that. So like to me, they're, they're, they really need to be paired. And if you try to do the, uh, just the straight decrim alone, I mean, good luck. Yeah, and the, the money, the influence, the institutions, the infrastructure is on the medical side, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's they have that going, right? So, and, and I say they, but I'm a part, I think I'm a part of both, <laughs> both camps, right, in many ways. So when I'm thinking with my, my strategic hat on and my policy hat, it's, what you just said, right? You have this establishment that's that has this power and ability to move things forward, to influence perception and influence adoption. How do you couple your the decrim perspective with that with this other perspective without um hindering right what they're trying to do on that with that thing? Because then you get this establishment, which is like pushing it, it has to be strategic right and and so like how do you do that and in order in, in order to do that there has to be dialogue there's going to be compromises so to your point when we're taking these like purist or like exceptionalism uh perspectives to a, a more grassroots model then we run the risk of of getting into this fight with the perspective and the model that's really what's powering the progress that we're seeing in terms of like changing opinions and 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 bringing it into like mainstream culture 
So I think I think the the thing to watch, what I'm curious about here in Illinois is what's going to happen with the established uh, mental health uh, interests. What's going to happen with the APA, the American or the Illinois Psychiatric Association, the Illinois Psychological Association, the, you know, and some of the bigger um, um, you know mental health centers, corporations, and whatnot. Like I'm real curious to see their response to the bill. Um, I'm anticipating resistance personally, but I'd like to be surprised. Yeah, that's part of the work that needs to be done is really bringing, I think the APA has made some uh, made some changes in terms of like having a committee or something like that. I, I Don't quote me though, I'm not sure. But I think, you know, earlier I said that right now everyone's playing nice and like mm. these professional organizations generally already are usually fighting over policy <laughs> issues like, who gets to diagnose, Yeah. Uh, who gets to do this, who gets to do that. And so when you add on like this whole new field and who's going to be able to prescribe and who's not and like nurse practitioners and psychiatrists and physicians, and there's a lot of uh, layers and layers and layers to how this will become more and more complicated. Um, a lot of turf wars, a lot of yeah. turf wars. Yeah, generally I haven't seen that yet um, with like, these or at least not publicly i haven't seen like in the states that i've been involved in like the apa or the nsw or anyone come out and say like we don't want this or we're against it or uh you know lobbying against the bill publicly i haven't seen that but i that might just be a lack of awareness or a lack of interest yet by by these larger organizations i don't know but generally the response from clinicians very positive and so i think that's going to be to our advantage in terms of you know if your membership is strongly supportive of these medicines and what they can do for their clients then you know these organizations are are their membership at the end of the day right so um hopefully we'll see uh their opinions be representative of their body of of members you know one thing that you've said a few times, Vic, is the need for education. And I, I agree that there's a there's a strong need to educate on all kinds of different levels. Um, you know, when I think about psychedelics uh, and how they've been used a lot in the underground, and maybe I'll, I'll also be referencing um, indirectly my own personal experience, like when things are underground, there's more likely that people will make mistakes. <laughs> because things aren't talked about openly and they're not, there's not guidance, there's not a community, there's not direction, you know? And we think about other things that we do as a culture like alcohol or driving cars. These can be very dangerous activities too. Um, you know, they have their own risks, but um, we accept that risk because we have, we talk about it. We have, we know how to use them safely and we can teach kids and teenagers, right? And and so with psychedelics, I think uh, the more open all of this becomes and the more people are able to talk about their use and, and ask questions and not feel like it's taboo or risky to do so, right, we'll see hopefully some of the harms uh, decrease in, in public use. So I think, you know, there's a criticism of community use that, oh, you can't just let any, you can't just let too many people start doing this because there'll be a lot of negative outcomes and, you know, I, of course, am worried about harm to people. Uh, but if we think about, again, other things in our culture that we accept risk around, um, we already do that. Yeah, like what do people think happens now? <laughs> and what's going to happen as these, as these medicines become medicalized is more underground use. Regard, so regardless mm -hmm. of whether you have community models or not, Mm -hmm. um, this is going to happen, right? And it's going to happen in the dark and it's going to happen, you know, in, in, in the light. And so, yeah, I don't think, I think the conversation is about what do we need to, to offer people in terms of support and infrastructure and, and education to make sure that there's safe use rather than saying no community use because of the risk, because that's going to happen and it's going, and it's going to increase exponent i mean it's already increasing you're seeing like increased use among adults and and young people uh like five or six times fold since over the last like year or two as these things are getting out and and 
being in the media more and so th and this is just the beginning right uh so imagine once you know once this is the fda comes out and says this is now a prescribable treatment and and we talked earlier about what these headlines and like policy uh progress and stuff does when when folks read it that's people are going to be curious and and um i think you're going to see increased community use regardless so of course of course you are it's like you know it's you know if they, they say hey this is a prescribable medication but then you can't get it unless you can unless you you know can afford to pay the three grand then people are gonna be like well how else can i get it because if it's this great medicine that's working you know and then i and you know and this is underscores the the complete absurdity of the whole thing and you know, it's three thousand bucks but or you can just freaking grow them and they don't, and they're, hard, and they're easy to grow and they don't cost much of anything to grow. That's just true. So it's absurd that you would have a situation which the only way you could access this, something that grows easily, you know, is, is, is just this one way and it's ridiculous. Like you just have to sign up for, yeah, I think our medical system is good and great and affordable, which I think it's 0 for 3 on, on, on good, great and affordable, personally. I, I think sometimes we can be disingenuous as a field when we talk about community use and underground use because the the truth is that a lot of people who are in in the space right um a lot of us are or have used uh, outside of a regulatory like a regulated structure because before Oregon and and now Colorado there wasn't one so like um, so I think we need to be honest about that too, right? A lot of folks, a lot of us, um, and, and maybe, you know, there is a risk with that, right? But I think you don't have to disclose your personal experience to keep that in your awareness as you're having these conversations. Like a lot of folks have had experiences with these plant medicines and, and benefited from them outside of a regulated uh, structure. Granted, they- Almost- Almost everyone, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I mean. Like, you know, there, there's, we have to be, we have to be truthful as well in these conversations about like, you know, as much as we can be and stay safe or about, you know, our, how we've been able to access these medicines um, for all of these years where there wasn't this kind of uh, regulatory structure and there's a lot of wisdom that's there already from folks that have been doing this work before it was cool to to me it would be like the height of of just disingenuousness to be like well yeah i did it when i was in college and my janitor sold me some and i did lsd and it was awesome and i got on this great path and it helped me but only people should only be able to use it in a regulated way now mm -hmm. like what the fuck is that that's some bullshit and I, you know, I, I get that there's safety concerns and, and whatnot, but the conversation, this conversation, the conversation should be, what do we need to build out to, to uh, make it safe for folks right. and accessible rather than like, um, how do we build more red tape so that people are safe when in reality, you're just creating conditions for more things. to. Yeah. We want safety, but we're not interested in control. Yeah. What, what would you like to see, Vic, in terms of education, like education for the public or for politicians? I know it's a broad question, but are there are there things that you'd really like to see more of that we're, we're not seeing as much of yet? Uh, I think we so I think it's it's multi-tiered. I think we need a federal level consensus around education to decision makers and legislators and government agencies and et cetera. Um, that is consistent uh, from from the leaders in the field that are working on policy and and the researchers, et cetera, on the medical side of things. Uh, same thing on the state level. And um, you know, every state is unique and and needs different approach, different kinds of education around uh, around these plant medicines. And then I think generally for for the general population, I think, I love, 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 love what Fireside Project is doing in terms of what they're offering in terms of support, active support when folks are planning to, are in, or uh, have had a psychedelic experience. 
but they also have like a I, I forget what it's called, but it's like the citizens psychedelic citizenship uh, uh, manual or something like that mm. that has a ton of resources around like if you're selecting a guide, here's what you should be thinking about. If you're going at it by yourself, here are ten things that you should keep in mind. Like have a sitter, uh, set and setting. You know, have warm like that kind of education of folks. Uh, they also, you know, um, warn folks about the risks uh, with certain substances, et cetera. So I think it's like a multi-tiered approach where we're educating legislators and decision makers. We're working at the state level to make sure that the information that we're delivering is relevant to that specific region and uh, different populations. And then at the community level, making sure that folks understand the power of these medicines and the risks that they're taking if they're engaging with it in a community setting or if they're looking for a guide that's not working within a regulated structure. So yeah, there's a lot, I, when I say education, there's a lot that we need to do there that, um, uh, and that I'm hopeful about. Again, I love what Fireside Project is doing and I know um, there's folks like uh, PMC who uh, Plant Medicine Coalition is working in DC to educate legislators. There's other folks that are like reason for hope they're doing state to state work uh general steel brett, brett waters who are doing a lot of education with like the va system and so it's it's about coordinating and and uh finding consensus and then having a uh strategic plan on how we're going to disseminate information across across the country around this well um man this is i love talking about um this aspect of, of, of stuff, um, you know, the policy and drug war and just the different forms, um, you know, that use can take and what we need to do to kind of create the space for, um, you know, sort of the cliche of let a thousand flowers bloom is how I see it, you know, like let's, you know, in order to see what works, we need to be able to try different structures um, and not only do one very top-down, very expensive way. Um, and to create the space for those structures, we you know, we have to create the safety via legislation. Because um, right now it's, people do it, it's just um, very risky um, due to repressive laws. So um, thanks for coming on and talking about this. This is, um, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, me too. Thank you. It was a pleasure being with you guys. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Altered States of Context. If you haven't already, please sign up for our newsletter by going to alteredstatesofcontext.com. You'll also find information there about where to find us on social media, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Your listening means a lot to us, and we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, have a great trip.